three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to There Will Be Bugs, an insect podcast created to enlighten listeners about the surprising world of entomology. I am one of your hosts, Ben. And I'm your other host, Zilla. And we're back. We're back. Although we never really left. But it has been a little while, it feels like. It has been. We're kind of finishing out our semester and focusing on that. And then also just taking a break. Yeah, it's good to rest. Something I want to kind of mention now, uh, I was start, I did start this podcast as a project for my Ento class. And I want to continue doing this because I enjoy it. That being said, I was... I I've was, always been here because I enjoy it. <laughs> I don't want to rag, but <laughs> that being said, I kind of we I stuck to a schedule when I was recording for the class because I had to. It was an assignment, and I had to get in a, a certain quota. I don't really know what our schedule is going to be like going forward, and I imagine during the summer I'm gonna we're gonna be taking a break because I'm gonna be in field season and it's gonna be busy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to think even though that's when the bugs are best, isn't it? Yeah, that is when the bugs are best. So maybe we won't. I don't know. It's all up in the air. It's really we also have like we're moving in the next couple of months and um, there's kind of a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, but we aren't sponsored by anyone, so we don't have to meet a quota or anyone anymore i guess i was kind of sponsored by (laughs) general entomology but now it's kind of on our own schedule i would like to think that we could do this bi-weekly releasing episodes i think that's what we're gonna i think that's something that we can shoot for but don't be too disappointed if you doesn't always land on the bi-weekly schedule it'll be a nice little surprise when we show up in your feed yeah and uh today i know we mentioned we've mentioned in the last episode too that we didn't read that book and we still have not read that book we will get to it i promise you at some point but um we're doing we're gonna move on and revisit that book and talk to you about the color of red at another time uh this week instead we're going to be talking about Uh, It's going to be more of a general ecology lesson applicable to the Finger Lakes region and the insects that in the streams, kind of. Cool. So if you if you haven't figured out, we live in New York. We're in the Finger Lakes region of New York. Zilla, you're not from here. Yeah. Do you know the Do you know the eleven Finger Lakes? Um, Canandaigua. Okay. Canisius. Yep. Honey Oi. Yep. Cuca. Yep. You're at four. Those are like the four most local to us, and then they get farther away, and I don't know. There's also Hemlock, Honey Oi. I didn't say Honey Oi? No, I don't, I don't think you did. Ah. You said Canisius, though, which was impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seneca, Cayuga. I definitely thought about saying Honey Oi <laughs> if I didn't. Skinny Atlas. Can you spell Skinny Atlas? No, I cannot. I cannot. <laughs> I've never been able to spell Skinny Atlas. If you're not from here and you want to see a bonkers word, look up Skinny Atlas Lake and it is, it's not spelled how it sounds. Yeah. Um, Canandaigua, like, can't, I've, I've never spelled Canandaigua correctly in my whole life. Uh, my phone has, like, learned it incorrectly, too, so it, like, autocorrects wrong. 
So, sorry. Disrespectful, I know, but there's, like, there's that A-U, that A-I-G, yeah, <laughs> just doesn't work for me. And then the two other Finger Lakes that I can never get off the top of my head, Owasco and Atisco. Funny enough, I didn't know this, Onondaga and Oneida are not considered Finger Lakes because they have significant limno uh, limnological differences. What does limnological mean? Uh, limnology is the study of like watersheds and water, like freshwater bodies and watershed. So they're significantly different from the actual Finger Lakes, which if you don't know why they're called the Finger Lakes, they're... It, they're kind of shaped like fingers and they were formed by the when the glaciers uh, came over our lands, our great lands of New York and the glaciers invaded and then receded. They like dug out these long, skinny, deep lakes in the in the ground. So that, that's kind of how they were formed. And because of this, so the Finger Lakes usually run like north north to south. They you, flow from from the south to the north into Ontario Lake. So uh, I don't know. This is kind of like a weird, like, misnomer that people, like, think for a reason. Rivers can flow north. People I know that's, think that rivers can't flow north. I, I think because I used to think this when I was in elementary school, but I think it's because people, like, if you look they at see, a globe, they see, they see yes, they <laughs> see north. I think that is why. I think it's because they see north as, like, uphill and not that gravity goes to the center of the earth, not up. Around, so I think that is the I think uh, that's I've the never, confusion. I've never heard that before, but I mean, it, it makes sense why yeah. people. I mean, it, also the Nile flows north, so keep that a very large river flows north. But all, a lot of the major ones in the U.S. flow south. Yes, you know, they the do. Yep, in the Colorado and yep, and the Ohio some. and the Snake and the all those ones. But yeah, rivers can flow north. But it's it, not because <laughs> south is downhill. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. <laughs> um, because of the way the Finger Lakes were formed, they're like these gouges out of the bedrock. Uh, you usually have like the this elevated topography around the lakes. And I'm not like talking like mountains around the lake, but if you're driving around the lakes, there's usually like a steep, kind of like a steep runoff down to the lake. Well, yeah, one of the things that kind of struck me when I moved here is coming from the west is that usually you get to the top of a hill and then you're at the top of a hill and it goes down on the other side. But here you kind of get to the top and then you're on like a plateau, right? Like yeah. everything's cut out of a Yeah, because the, the lakes were a bit like are basically inset down beneath the ground. Uh, so you have all these like all this topography that runs downhill around our lakes and you get all these uh, gullies, rills, and glens that flow down into the lake. What's a rill? So I so I've all I've heard all these terms before, and there's just small limnological differences be between these terms: a gully, a rill, and a glen. It, we're not. We don't need to get into the details of them, but th there are some like formal differences between them. But for our case, like we have various gullies, glens, and rills uh, around around the Finger Lakes that all kind of run into the lake, and 
what I want to be, what I want to kind of address is the the important ecology of these of these gullies, and how they're they're changing ever so rapidly in the recent in the recent times. So uh, we're going to be talking kind of about the landscape around the gullies and how an insect is influencing that, and then we're going to be talking about the actual water in the gullies and how insects influence that and how it's all kind of tied together in this big umbrella of ecology. So while we're talking about this, I want to preface all the ecology and the water quality and and pollution by saying I I want to be talking about this not thinking about all the other terrible human-induced pollution on the lake. I, I that that is like a bigger problem in its own and it ought, and that influences the lake in its own. So what I'm going to be talking about is is a side of that is this is something that happens aside of all the other pollution that's happening and all the other water quality problems were happening. So in the big picture of eco- in ecology, this is kind of a smaller, smaller picture at this point because there's so many other things going on but i still think it's an important one and if we didn't have all this other like pollution problem going on we uh, this would probably be higher up on the ladder okay to get into it uh have you ever hiked uh like in grimes glen in the summer or we we went to um yeah we went to Watkins glen or like there's a few other glens in the naples area that you can like hike through Conklin's Gully and, and stuff like that. Yeah, Pax and I used to do Grimes Glen all the time um, when we lived. I used to live right there. So yeah, you were was, right on Elizabeth was, Street. Yeah, it was easy to get there. And then High Tour. We, just, yeah. we did High Tour a lot during the pandemic. Yeah, and, and so it, there's a... Without Paxton. There, it was before his time. There's a reason why those places are really like popular destinations in the summertime. If you if you think about it, oh like, yeah. Well, while, while you're there, like, kind of, what's your experience when yeah. it's like a scorching ninety five degree it's summer busy. day? Yeah, there's always people. I don't like to do it on the weekends because there's usually like many many people. Um and. Yeah, there's there and you walk right up the stream bed, right? There's no trails off to the side, so you're you're in the water, uh, which is great when it's hot out. Yeah, yeah. So these gullies are me. Yeah. <laughs> now these gullies are usually like the water in them during the summertime. Even if it's like ninety five degrees out, the water is like a cool sixty mm-hmm. degrees. Yeah, and like the air, the atmosphere is like cool because it's usually shaded. You're kind of down in the bedrock with like trees all up above you. Um, like yeah. the cliff- yeah, I've gone in there in like really hot days and been cold. Yeah, because it's. <laughs> just so different it's so different protected and like the cliff the cliff can go up to like you're in this gully where the cliffs around you are like a hundred feet up in some Mm -hmm. places and then you have like dense tree canopy above um so it's really cool and it like stays nice and cool in this in these gullies and the the if you don't know much about the history again this is a big history of new york lesson here um, I'm not from here, so I don't. I mean, I don't know any of this. It's great. Uh, the these gullies are are usually forested and always have been forested. 
In the 1890s, uh, 70% of New York was converted to farmland. So after the Industrial Revolution and farming became really big, New York, which I think historically be pre-colonial uh, settlement was like 90% forested, like completely forested. Yeah, you look at... You, have you ever seen pictures of Naples from... Like, yes. Like 100 years ago? There's no, there's no trees. No trees. It's all um, vineyards. But... These gullies were often not victim to logging because they were so difficult to actually log. You wouldn't you wouldn't be able to get horses into them or mules to get the logs out. And like with the there's not enough river to float them yep. down. And yeah, there's not enough stream river. Really. And the and just the faces, the like these cliff faces are so steep, like mm-hmm. it's just not worth it. So a lot of times these um, gullies were never cut. They they were always forested, and um, and so they still remain uh, always forested. And because of that, like I said, this the these gullies are usually cooler than the surrounding landscape. And the cool water is really important. I don't know if you remember, like, high school chemistry class or, or anything like that. <laughs> I was pretty good at school, but not good at chemistry. <laughs> um, for those that don't know, cold water holds more dissolved oxygen than warm water. Uh, and... Uh, in a aquatic life, oxygen is really important and usually a big limiting nutrient. So if we think of nutrients, we think of, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, like that stuff like that. But in an aquatic environment, uh, oxygen is usually a limiting um, nutrient. If you compare ox- well, oxygen- well oxygenated water to the atmosphere... Well, oxygenated water has about eight milligrams of oxygen per liter, while the atmosphere has approximately 210 milligrams of oxygen per liter. <laughs> so that's a big difference. Yeah. That, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, there's a big difference in oxygen between the atmosphere and water. And so having cold water is really important because it can hold more... Uh, it can hold more oxygen in it. And if you're like a trout fisherman or I don't know. Or I'm a not trout. A, or a trout. <laughs> like uh, like a lot of times these larger like game fish that people like and bring like a lot of publicity need like highly oxygenated water or they don't or they suffocate. Uh, so that's just something to keep in mind. It's a weird quirk of evolution. Like you have to breathe... <laughs> oxygen but also live underwater (laughs) deal with it um and another thing to note about these uh, forested areas because or these gullies because they're forested and you usually don't have development like directly on the gully uh they're usually lower in pollution levels because you don't have runoff from lawns or Mm. farms or what have you or like roads road salt and stuff like that stuff that is you know if there's if there's a house near there it's downstream um, Uh where the where the gully opens up i'm thinking about where we went to the burning spring oh yeah 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 um 
there's a house there and it was, I mean, but that's, yeah, downstream. Yeah. Yeah. But, and for the most part, you know, just cause like this is such a tough landscape around them, like you can't develop it, mm-hmm. you know, you can develop it kind of further downstream when it gets closer to the lake and, and whatnot, but the headwaters are Things usually, open up a little, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but the headwaters are usually not developed. And so you uh, these are kind of already naturally low pollution levels. Kind of, so now we're going to go to like the primitive base. I, I kind of set the scene with why these gullies are cool, literally and figuratively. <laughs> uh, they, they're, they're cold, so they have a lot of oxygen in them and they're low pollution. Part of how this all stays in balance is the the forested landscape around it and a lot of times the dominant species of these gullies and glens are uh, suga canadensis and that's the eastern hemlock the eastern hemlock is one of the most shade tolerant trees in the united states like it can grow in the shade is that what that yes It, it can grow in like i think it was like I don't know how this scale works. No, I'm not even going to say it. Because <laughs> I don't, I do not remember whatsoever. Yes, and because the eastern hemlock is so shade tolerant, it can grow in these very, really, in these very dense canopies and like clumps. Uh, and when, when you think about it, like the the canopy is super dense of the eastern hemlock, so it creates a lot of shade beneath it it doesn't get a lot of sunlight down to the forest floor below and be and because what's growing beneath these larger hemlocks or smaller hemlocks it's like this self-perpetuating cycle where you just get denser and denser stands of hemlocks that just keep like fulfilling this area and like nothing else can seed in there because it's so dark and and dense so you oh they okay yeah so they they they, like basically engineer this 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 they carve out a little space for themselves where like nothing else can grow yeah nothing else can tolerate the environment they've made yeah and a lot of times how they get established like this is they are um, from what I know, at least in New York, they're probably one of the longest lived tree species in New York. Um, and I think that goes for a, a, a lot of the Eastern United States. You also, you have, out West, you have like the bristlecone pines and all the sequoias and redwoods. Those are pretty long lived, but on the East coast, we don't have anything like that except for the Eastern hemlock and arguably the, um, Eastern white cedar, but since it lives so long, it can just wait for it to basically dominate an area. It, it plays the long game. Mm. So you have all these other trees that might be like above it, kind of like restricting it to like grow first, into it. But they're going to die. But then they're, they're going to die. And then the hemlock long. comes in and just like outlives it easily. There's been a term for, for Eastern hemlocks and it's called a foundation species. Uh, this basically means that it acts as an ecosystem engineer and greatly greatly influences the structure and dynamics of the ecosystem around it. And, and it does this because every every species everything in the ecosystem influences the the ecosystem in some way. Like whatever's living here influences the environment around it. But the to get a title like this, it does it disproportional. It it's like disproportionate how much it influences the environment to like it's the the numbers of it. Okay. 
And so you have these hemlocks hanging around in these gullies and glens for hundreds, uh, you know, maybe even thousands to thousands of years old. Um, There's been some cord in New York, like 800 years old. Uh, So um, who knows really how long they can they can last for. And um, they just create these really cold and damp microclimates that help keep the, the gullies and glens cold and help keep the water cold. And as this water's flowing through these cold areas over um, like turbulent spots, uh, because it, it, is, it is a stream going downhill, it can be like turbulent, mm-hmm. it's, it's getting extra oxygenated as it, before it flows down into the lakes eventually. So that that sets the scene for kind of like the oxygen part. Now you dive into the water itself, like in the lake, or uh, in the, into in the, in the streams, in the yep, yeah, in the gullies, in the in the glens. So during the winter time, there's usually not a lot of insects out and about. But if you're a, an entomologist, you can go uh, netting for these macroinvertebrates that are in the water, and they're still active all year round. Uh, they are um, usually the larva of uh, aquatic insects or semi-aquatic insects. And uh, these macroinvertebrates are, u- are usually big water quality indicators. The biggest ones that come to mind are mayflies, stoneflies, and caddisflies. The larvae of all those are aquatic, and you can find them in the water right now. Um, but also dobsonfly larvae are intolerant to water pollution, and uh, dragonfly larvae are moderately tolerant to pollution. And if you're... If you're a scientist working for the government and or a college student in an environmental science class, uh, you will often go out and monitor for these different uh, macroinvertebrates in bodies of water because their levels show how good the water is. Exactly, exactly, because they're not tolerant to any sort of pollution. And if there is pollution present, they'll die. So if you find uh, either, you know, these mayflies, stoneflies, or caddisflies, it usually means that the water is of good quality. And uh, you can kind of have a scale. There's there's various scales that scientists have developed to, like, uh, if you found this many of this many, uh, you know, you give it a certain rating and everything like that. But that's not that's not super important. The important takeaway is that if you have mayflies, stoneflies, or caddisflies in your stream, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah, you want them. And their importance goes further than just, like, indicating water quality like that's something that like we use them for and like so we like as scientists consider them important because oh they indicate water quality for us and stuff like that but these macroinvertebrates uh provide a lot of services in these streams um, and they can be classified into a few different categories so you have shredders which feed <laughs> that, you know, play Tony Hawk's pro skater yeah. and get all the, the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> get all the uh, letters in skate. Now they uh, feed on living or decomposing plant tissue, like fallen leaves, which they chew, mine or gouge. 
You also have collectors. They feed on fine uh, particulate matter by filtering particles from suspension, suspension being in water, like in the water column. And then you have scrapers, which feed on attached algae and diatoms by grazing solid surfaces. In the headwaters of these gullies and glens, like we said before, it's usually heavily shaded by hemlocks, so algae and other phytoplankton are scarce. However, shredders usually predominate because they can survive off the high input of leaves and wood from surrounding forests. So, like, even though you have hemlocks in the general facility of, like, the, uh, of the glen, you have deciduous trees, you know, dominating the rest of the landscape. And what do they do in the autumn time? They drop their, it's very pretty. <laughs> they drop their beautiful leaves. They drop their beautiful leaves and they fall into the water. And that's where the, the. This is another example of insects breaking <laughs> dead stuff down for us. <laughs> yep. Thanks, insects. Uh, the shredders are usually the stonefly and caddisfly larvae, so they use their mandibles and. Is a microinvertebrate insect? Micro macroinvertebrates. It was because we're a bug podcast. There are other macroinvertebrates that are not insects, but for this case, stoneflies, caddisflies, and mayflies, Dobson flies are all insects. But you also get other uh, non-insect macroinvertebrates. Got it. But that's a good question. That's a good question. Stoneflies and caddisflies are usually your shredders, so they're gonna be like in the headwaters of the glen. They're gonna be shredding up like the big pieces of leaves and sticks and stuff like that. And as they shred them up, they break this organic matter down into more manageable pieces for other aquatic insects. So now you're getting kind of like the finer, like little micro, microplastics of the, of the leaf world. Like a mother bird. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Masticating food for its young. Uh, So further down the, uh, further down the glen, you have scrapers and collectors. So areas where there's more available light and you get phytoplankton to glow, to grow on like rocks and stuff like that. That's where scrapers come, come in. Scrapers are usually comprised of mayflies. So they basically literally scrape the algae off the rocks and eat that. Collectors, like gather up all those small micro particles that the that the shredders made upstream uh they like they collect those particles and feed off of those uh collectors there's um some fly larvae that are collectors also clams and other bivalves i know they're not insects but they're collectors and their waste then they you know, defecate in the water sure. and that is nutrient rich. And so you get all those nutrients that these insects have basically broken down in this in this stream from wood and leaf material. You have all this water carrying this oxygen rich and like nitrogen rich water into the lake and all that water then feeds the fish. That's kind of like the big picture that we're we're getting at here is like there's all these services going on in these glens, either biotic or abiotic, whether it just be like cold water that has oxygen in it or like all these in, uh, insect larvae breaking down large organic matter into smaller, more usable organic matter. 
And it's, it's really important for all the lakes that we have here. However, things could change in the next few years. If you don't, if you're not familiar with the hemlock woolly adelgid, it is a introduced insect that's made its way into the Finger Lakes. The hemlock woolly adelgid, adelgis suge, was introduced into the United States in the 1920s. However, the, there is debate whether it was, if it's native to the West Coast, completely like not native to the United States or, you know, anything in between. But it ha it is, it's found in, like, Japan and uh, Eastern Asia, and there's a lot of, a lot of evidence to show that it is also native to, like, British Columbia and, like, Washington State in that area. But the big problem is, is when it was introduced into, like, the Eastern United States. Uh, it was first discovered in New York in the 1980s. It was found in the Finger Lakes in 2008. And in tw uh, 2017, it was discovered in the Adirondacks. So they're spreading. They're spreading. However, it is a very slow spread. Adelgid, which is a hemiptrin in the family Adelgidae, uh, there's only 74 species known worldwide. It's a very small family. They're closely related to aphids, like just very small. Tiny, like yes, very like... tiny little insects. And they, they, they move very slowly. I believe that they do have a, mo a mobile phase where they have wings, but they can't fly very far just because they're such a small insect. And, and it probably feels really far to them. Yes, it is a very <laughs> long distance for them to travel. They feed by uh, piercing, sucking mouth part like aphids or scales. Uh, so they insert their little stylet into the uh, like the twigs and the branches of the trees and they suck out the phloem of the tree. Uh, this is a very you know, common case with these hemiptrin pests. They all do it. And again, the, pro the problem arises when you have a lot of them on a tree. You know, just it a few. Like it would take a lot. It, <laughs> such a little bug on such a big tree. Yes, literally death by a thousand cuts. And uh, they just like keep multiplying on the tree. And they, so they can reproduce asexually. So they don't need a male to reproduce. And they can have two generations per year. So they can really just keep multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And it's their best day ever for them because they're on this like unlimited food source. Yep, this unlimited food source without a natural predator to keep them in check. And they just go crazy. That is a big problem because they're, we haven't really found any resistance in the hemlocks yet. Uh, they hold out for a few years. They like they're really resilient, but uh, you know eventually they always succumb. It just like the numbers get so great. If you were a hemlock tree, would you rather die by getting chainsawed down or this way? Uh, definitely chainsawed. I think quick so. yeah. and so applying this to our big ecology picture that we're having today. If we lose the hemlocks, that could be a big problem for our cold water. Oh, and then that's a whole big thing for everything else. That's a whole big thing for everything else because a lot of these uh, macroinvertebrates need the like you know all this oxygenated cold water to survive. Mm -hmm. So we could lose them after the water increases. 
And then you're having... And then, it, and then there's... They're not feeding the bigger things. In the lake. And the... Yeah. So there, it's... Nice nutrient-rich water is not going to the lake then. Yeah. It, it's it's this whole idea... Hold on. Let me look up the... God, ecosystems are... It's not something I, I like know very much about or have studied very much, but the, the little bit that I have learned, it's it's amazing how everything sort of stacks on each other. Yeah. And one of the papers that I was reading, one of the authors coined this term the river continuum concept so it it's is what it sounds like like everything downstream is influenced by like whatever happens upstream Mm -hmm. of it Mm -hmm. Uh, it it could be it could be a really big deal and a lot of people are honestly freaking out about it but there has been a little bit of research into it not a little bit there's been a lot of research into it (laughs) However, there hasn't been a lot of good answers. Like there, there's a lot of people out there doing a lot of work to try and solve this problem, and it's been very hard and slow going. If you're someone who has a lot of hemlocks on your property, and uh, you know you want to do something about that, it it is a it is definitely an uphill battle. It's not impossible, but it is an uphill battle. Uh, some of the options out there for control of the hemlock woolly adelgid are pesticides so you can get foliar sprays of horticultural oil or insecticide scope uh, insecticide soap uh, the problem with these is like you need to coat the entire tree with these and you have to cover it's a big tall tree it is a big tall tree that where... you can't drive a boom truck up to <laughs> yeah or and like you have to cover the top side of the branch the bottom side of the branch like everything if you don't get the entire thing like you're not going to get full coverage and your problem's just going to come back and so these are this is like an option if you have like a smaller ornamental like hemlock in your yard this is probably a good and like you know economic decision um but there's also systemic treatments there's uh, imidacloprid which can be applied to the soil around trees or injected directly into the bark uh these this treatment can be very effective but it is often expensive um, treatments last up to five years, and this is obviously not a long-term solution because you just have to keep reapplying every five years. And if this is something where you're treating, you know, a lot of trees and spending thousands of dollars every five years, like it's just not a very economical solution long-term. But some people are pushing for this because it can help slow the spread until we get like a a better solution out there so you might be able to preserve some of your trees so you lose everything yeah so you're not losing everything you can save some stuff and then hopefully we have a better solution in you know two to three years fingers crossed uh, some of the stuff that looks like it's going to be a better solution are our biocontrol agents there is the laricobius beetle uh, this is native to the Pacific Northwest, where it is a natural predator of hemlock woolly adelgid, and it has been shown to feed only on developing and adult hemlock woolly adelgid. And this is kind of the argument why hemlock woolly adelgid is native to the West, because this beetle, which has been found out there, only feeds on hemlock woolly adelgid. So. That sounds... I feel like 
again, without knowing that much about it, like biocontrol is really interesting. Like, but it also feels like there could be a lot of potential for just like opening Pandora's box, just releasing other strange insects into the environment. But if that's all it eats, that's probably not yeah. terrible. We could do a whole episode on uh, on biocontrol, but that that's the way it was a hundred years ago where people just released things and caused really bad problems. There's a lot of pests that we have now that were originally introduced as biocontrol and they turned out to not do what they were supposed to, but I will thought they were going to. Yeah. But I will say there is a lot of regulations nowadays where I, I feel very confident in the biocontrol system because it takes years and years and years of testing and like all this evidence that you have to be able to prove that this will do what it's it says. not opening Pandora's yeah and so it, it we've i think we've kind of fixed the system unfortunately it does take a long time to develop these biocontrols where right. like sometimes we need it right now but i understand why it happened uh just some evidence about the uh, larcobius beetle so our main entity in united in the in new york working for the hemlocks is the new york state hemlock initiative this is a kind of a uh this is a part of cornell university uh they released the larcobius beetle at 21 sites across the across new york state since uh 2008 in 2018 and 2019, the New York State Hemlock uh, Initiative, that's a long, that's going to get fucking annoying to say. Nishi. <laughs> um, N-Y-S-H-I. How Nishi. about the initiative? The initiative sampled mm, for... That makes it sound so mysterious. <laughs> in, in 2018 and 2019, the initiative sampled for the beetle at release sites, and they were only present at five of the 21 sites. Mm. So... Establishment and large-scale rearing for the uh, Laracobius beetle looks like it's going to be, like, a big limiting factor for it. It it just, like, what the big thing that we we found is that it doesn't do as well in our cold climate. I was just going to say, yeah, that it's a little, it's not the same climate here as it is in the Pacific Northwest. There was a few studies that I, I looked at, and... Judging, you know, a few of the factors that they looked at was release, uh, minimum release size, so how many beetles they initially released, the hemlock woolly adelgid density at the release site, um, the release season, and the minimum winter temperature that was observed. The only one that they correlated to the like survivability of the of the beetle was minimum w- winter temperature. So it doesn't, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it doesn't matter how many adelgid, how many beetles you released, you know, all that. The only thing that seemed to be correlated to the, um, to the survival of the beetle was, was the minimum temperature. Well, it is getting warmer in the winter here, so it is. You it, know, that's not great, probably. But it is, yeah. For this one beetle, and this, it might be nice. Yeah, and you did a perfect segue into, like, I saw a few papers from, like, Virginia and other, you know, eastern states that have hemlock woolly adelgid, and uh, a sampling from Virginia saw an 80% es- uh, establishment of the beetle. So, it like, it seems to be a really good option for some of the states further south because they, they have so much better establishment. 
There's a few other paper uh, papers that I saw that I won't get too much into, but another uh, biocontrol agent that I'm going to briefly, quickly talk about is the, ah, uh, man, it's it's a silver fly. It is the Leucotaraxis silver fly. Uh, this seems to be a good, like, complement with the beetle because the the silver fly targets different life stages than the beetle targets. So like they can be feeding like maybe one on the eggs, one on the adults. Like they're, they're a good complement. They aren't targeting the same mm. life spot of the, of the hemlock woolly adelgid. Uh, the research for the silver fly is in, is a little more preliminary than the beetle that uh, all the research that I saw, like, most of it suggested that more research is needed to see how successful this silver fly is going to be. But it is something that people are are looking into. And I'm just going to kind of finish out with giving, if you're a homeowner with hemlocks and hemlock woolly adelgid, this can probably seem very overwhelming. And it, a lot, it, you cannot buy these biocontrol control agents as just like a homeowner there's just not enough numbers of them and there's not enough research and like scientists are kind of hoarding the the biocontrol right now because they need it to like get further research done so those aren't something that you can just you know go online and buy uh but you can if you are a homeowner and you are interested in treating some of your hemlocks you can buy um a soil dredge uh imidacloprid uh, this is a pesticide and something that I've learned at my current job that's super important is please, 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 if you're going to apply a pesticide, read the label. <laughs> like, read the directions. They are super important, not only for the safety of yourself, but the environment. And it is something that you might not know. It is illegal to, it is illegal to apply a pesticide not according to its label. Like if, if you, you can be fined if you get found out and you probably won't, but it is but illegal. Still, yeah. Don't, when you're playing with toxicity like that, like don't. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> more isn't always better. Right. How this would basically work if you want to apply this soil dredge is you'd remove the leaf litter from around the base of the tree. You would apply it to the soil in the proper like quantity and like percentage mixture that is approved. You would apply it to the soil around the trees when the soil is like moist but not too wet, not too dry, and then the uh, you would apply it preferably in the summertime when the trees are actively uh, transpirating so they're uptaking water so the tree will uptake the imidacloprid into its vascular system and then the uh the hemlock woolly adelgid will feed on the tree and basically suck up this imidacloprid and and die kind of like a flea with a with right. your with your dog right. we've made that analogy before what does it look like on like if the tree is infested with? Oh, um, yeah. If if you if you, I should have said something about that. <laughs> uh, they, you usually get these white tufts of. They look like little white cotton balls on the underside of the branches of the trees. I will show Zilla a picture because you're kind of like the artist, 
and you i'm sure you'll have a I'll better paint a word picture yeah. for the listeners so they this is what it looks like so they're little like kind of q-tip like the cotton ball part of a q-tip size little tufts that um sit along like the branch kind of in between the needles they all look pretty similar the insect is underneath that like tuft it it creates that like tuft over time as it grows and it helps protect it during the winter um it kind of like is like a little insulation like you know yeah a little sleeping bag so uh, if you start seeing these, like, you know, low cottony tufts. But it's not, it's, I was kind of imagining, like, trying to look for aphids on a tree, which is not, is not the case. Like, it's, it's pretty apparent if you've got this growing on your branches. Yeah, and, the, you know, the branches will start, like, dying back, and the needles will start, start browning and falling off, and, but you can usually spot them way, way before the tree gets to that point. If you're to that point, the tree is done. Like, if it starts dropping a lot of needles, it, like, now it's too late. Yeah. Um, but it's not, it doesn't, it's not, like, hard to check for or, or hard to see or anything. It's not, like, it's not like trying to find aphids on a tree, which sounds hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, imidacloprid is something, you know, a homeowner can buy. It, it's not a restricted-use pesticide. Read the label. It's important. Um, just to keep in mind, the cost of imidacloprid is about 70 to 80 cents per diameter inch of a tree. So you have an inch that's 10, if you have a tree that's 10 inches in diameter, it's going to be about uh, $8 to treat. If you have, Which isn't too bad. It isn't too That's bad. It doesn't have a lot of trees. It, yeah, if you have a forest of them, so you have hundreds of stems, that's when you start getting into the the 800 to maybe 1500 like are they slow moving enough that if it's you only find it on a couple of trees you could treat those and the ones around it you could you could the best yeah you could definitely like if target an option you could yeah, target like problem. the more severe trees and kind of like you know rotate your basically your cycle your pesticide rotation i don't know how effective it would be long term or even short term but if you if that's all you got is you know give it a give it a good give it a shot it's better than nothing yeah trying another practice that helps with all sorts of pests and pathogens and diseases is just keep try and keep your trees healthy besides the hemlock woolly adelgid so if you have the adelgid something you can and you can't afford to treat or um, maybe treating's not an option uh, just try and limit any extra damage to the hemlocks so don't be trimming branches don't be just leave it alone like it needs all the energy it can get and like you trimming branches off of it isn't going to help it because it's gonna now like put energy into trying like sealing wounds and stuff like that um also if you can like remove nearby maybe like deciduous trees or other conifers and just like reduce competition that that's another good like silver cultural practice where you're just like trying to increase the overall health of the tree. A healthy tree is better at resisting disease than a non-healthy tree. And the last thing I want to say is don't move firewood long distances or brush or anything like that. The adelgid is super slow mo- moving and it shouldn't have moved as quickly as it as it did into New York and upstate and other places but we hypothesize that it was on wood and other material and you know maybe it's a lost cause for the adelgid but there's going to be another pest someday and so we shouldn't be moving that around 
So it's just good practice. Don't move your firewood long distances, please. No one's going to, you're never going to get caught, but it's just a good practice to do. If you want to know more information, especially about treatment options, uh, visit New York State Hemlock Initiative at Cornell University. Uh, just throw that in the old Google bar and you'll get some more information. That concludes our episode for today. If you have enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a review and, and share it with your friends. We don't pay to advertise our podcast, so word of mouth is how we get our podcast out there. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, feel free to contact me. I am at bdkn223 at uky.edu. Thank you for listening, and remember to stay spineless. like prime real estate for cats in this house Jeez. me into the gully and then i just like tumbled a hundred feet to the, the yeah. base of the gully i think that'd be pretty sick <laughs> i'm with you don't step in the paint